This episode is dedicated to the memory of Johnny Hooker Border. He is the father of our music producer, Keith Bubby Webb. Hooker was a legend in the Metro Detroit music scene. Our condolences to Bubby and Hooker's family, friends, and all the musicians he influenced. Rest in peace, my brother. What's up, good people all across the world? This is the Dripping in Black podcast. I am your host, David V. Lewis. And per usual, we have a very special guest. Today, we have a, na- a person by the name of Chris Johnson. Um, very excited, per usual, to kind of get into the discussion with them. But first of all, Chris Johnson, just say hello to the world. What's going on, world? It's Chris Johnson here. David, thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate you, brother. Yeah. So let's uh, start off just kind of telling the world a little bit about Chris Johnson, the person. So who are you? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, my name is Chris. Born in Detroit, raised here in Southfield, Michigan. And uh, yeah, first and foremost, I'm a father. I have two young sons, Bennett and Jonah. They're my heart, my world. They're eight and 10. Very creative uh, young geniuses. And uh, yeah, man, I'm a, I'm an artist through and through. It's kind of hard to talk about myself outside of music, <laughs> but definitely, man, I'm living this every single day, uh, being creative, using my energy to, to heal people, to heal myself and just bringing as much positivity as possible. Yeah. So I'll help you out with uh, the description. I see okay. a commissioned artist. That's true. A recording artist, a composer a orchestra director, a college instructor, a jazz band, a player, musician. Uh, what did I miss? <laughs> I mean, you pretty much got it. I write for film too, <laughs> but other than that, you got it. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, film and musicals and a lot of other things. So, for sure. okay, let's let's dive into it. I'm going to ask you a loaded question. What do you do? <laughs> so, um Honestly, I do whatever is either going to do one or two things. It's either going to fulfill something artistic, some sort of artistic need that's in me, some form of expression, or whatever is going to pay the bills. Ideally, usually a combination of both. So (laughs) it depends on what day of the week. Right now, my major focus is on as many uh, creating virtual experiences for people. So whether this is like virtual content for people that follow me on social media, or producing virtual content for like private events and things of that nature, and also producing virtual learning, um, distance learning for students through my online courses, through my website, Office Hours with Chris Johnson. So right now it's very much so still creating, still educating, but really putting an emphasis on how to make the highest quality product while remaining virtual. Because I think that's what we need right now. To me, I'm, I'm not, I don't have any excuses for where I'm at right now. We're in this virtual format. I'm going to make the highest quality product absolutely possible so we can reach as many people. Yeah. Yeah. So I got a few questions regarding COVID and its impact on artists in general. And uh, we'll get around to that a little okay. bit later. But I know you play an instrument. Instrument. I know of one. But uh, tell the world about the instruments that you play. Yeah. So I play. Uh, I'm a trumpet player. Uh, primarily, that's definitely my main my main instrument: trumpet, flugelhorn, 
Uh, I play piano, but not professionally, but I do compose and arrange everything I do on the piano. These days, uh, honestly, I'm spending more time at my computer at the piano than I am anything else because I'm doing a ton of writing, you know, a ton of work online. But yeah, uh, you know, that's pretty much that's pretty much it. Just trumpet and piano. But I write for any instrument. Okay. You know, arranging is is a is a huge part of my life for sure. So the trumpet is your your master is instrument. That, that is the instrument that I like to believe I master, but most days it masters me. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. All right. Well, I'm gonna ask you a a very interesting question. Okay. Uh, Go it for has it. two parts to it. So All right. when did you think you were good and when did you know you were good? <laughs> um I didn't think I was good at anything until like pretty late into freshman year of high school. Okay. Uh, Damian Crutcher, uh, who I know is a mutual friend, saw something in me, man. And, and he started really getting on my case freshman year of high school. I was second to last chair in our marching band. <laughs> and I never forget, I know Damian's probably tired of me telling the story, but one day, we're sitting there in the marching band. He stops the entire band and he points at me. It's like, Johnson, I see you over there. You don't know your part. You don't know any of your steps and you think I can't see you, but I see you. And it was a heavy moment because honestly, prior to that, I kind of felt invisible and I was pretty happy feeling invisible. I thought, you know, wow. I'm just kind of, you know, just hiding, doing whatever. But Crutcher has that ability, man, as an educator, as a person to just see people and point them out. And so he called me out, man. And I was terrified. I started practicing out of fear. <laughs> By the time we rolled around to like, you know, later in the semester, it was time for symphonic band auditions. I auditioned and I moved from second to last chair in the entire school to third chair in the entire school as a freshman. And we had like a trumpet section of, you know, like, like 17 trumpets or something crazy like that. And uh, it's really wild, man. After that, I started to believe like, wow, I think I actually might have found something that I'm good at, that I have some talent in. I just started putting in work. But past that, man, I don't know. It's, as far as I'm concerned, I'm still that that kid, you know, that was second to last chair that's just trying to practice, that's just trying to catch up, that's just trying to express himself. So wow. to me, I, that belief was there, but there was always something, man. There's always a higher plane to get to. So uh, I'm just trying to be dope, you know? That's really, yeah. that's like my whole wow. that, that That's, uh, you know, I can't wait people I can't wait for people to watch this and then go and listen to you play. <laughs> and say, okay, this guy this guy's pulling the wool over our eyes. Oh man, come on. Over our ears. Uh, you know, uh, we know you're dynamic with that. But you know, on this show, I'm I'm an educator too by trade. And and so when the uh, the artist kind of gets or the, the interviewee kind of gets uh, into their own terminology, I like to add some clarity. Okay. You know, so for for layman, so when you talk about first chair, third chair, last chair, break that down for somebody who's never been in any chair. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, really, it's 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 kind of like within your section, right? So we got trumpet players, and it'd be the same as you know, um, if you're in the middle of an election, if you're in the middle of you know who who's the best chess player on a chess team, and you had to rank from top to bottom. So first chair is like the absolute top, it's the, 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 the best player o- overall within your trumpet section. So I went from being second to worst in the school to third, the third best in the school. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very, very proud of that. Um, it shocked 
it shocked everything in me, man. That that caught me way off guard. But uh, you know, been just trying to earn that that right ever since, you know. Yeah. For sure. So that's you know, that's it's a lot there, man. Uh, like you said, I know Mr. Crutcher very well, good friend of mine, how I came to know you a little bit. And uh, you know, so that's a whole nother story for a whole nother day. <laughs> um, but it's interesting the impact that that decision had on your life, right? And so it goes from a child that's trying to hide on purpose to being called out and then kind of tapping into something greater within them that they didn't even Mm. notice themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. So you serve uh, in one of your multiple roles as an instructor. Do you find yourself trying to do some of those things as well? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, it's a responsibility that I take very seriously. I'm, I'm constantly mentoring whether I'm in an official, you know, role as an educator or whether I'm just working with a student who reaches out to me through social media or through mutual friends or whatever. Uh, I take my investment in young students very seriously, allowing them to kind of have some inspiration to believe in themselves, to believe they're capable of something instilling discipline. I think Nine times out of 10, the material that we're teaching is many times less important than the lessons they walk away with that they can apply to any area of their life. So to me, it's really about them feeling seen, them feeling heard, and then being inspired to do, you know, whatever. Man, I never push a student into a career in music. I never push a student like, oh, this is what you should do. Now, most of them, if they come to me and they're already ready for it, I wouldn't discourage them. Yeah. But I've had students, you know, who are, you know, go on to do pre-med or go on to, you know, to law or anything like that. But they can gain so much from studying music. I think it's about these like these life lessons that we're able to instill in them. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about a few things. Okay. You have an online platform called Office Hours. Yes. Educate us on that. So Office Hours came about um, when I was still teaching at the University of Utah. I was the director of JET studies there for four years. And, you know, what I discovered uh, during that time is that a lot of students, they'd gain a lot from being in the ensembles. They would gain a lot from, you know, taking the courses, all that. But a lot of the students would tell me that the time they cherish the most is when they could just come kick it in my office. Yeah. If I was in my office and I was there, any, you know, anytime I was there in the building, I was there to 10, 11 o'clock at night, at least. Mm-hmm. working on music so a lot of times the students would just come by they would text me or they would just come by and just like you know yo what are you working on so i had like an open door policy if i was in my office working they could come in and just shadow me so i'm working on a film or i'm working on an arrangement or doing whatever and i'm just sitting there being me but i'm sharing with them step by step oh well this came about because of such and such such and such oh i'm i'm over here in finale doing this or i'm in logic pro and i'm working with this and the students would gain a lot just from having these conversations. And so I got this idea of trying to basically capture that virtual experience, that try to capture that experience virtually, I mean to say, mm-hmm. and to be able to allow students across the world a little bit more insight into my world as an educator, where it's less about being in the classroom and it's less about that in-person experience. And it's more so just kind of like being real with these are the things that I do in my life that I want to share with you. These are the, the specific tools. If I had no university 
that was backing me saying, oh, you have to teach this, then this is what I think is important. And this is what I would teach. This is what I would focus on. This is what I wish I had learned mm-hmm. in college and many times. So yeah. Office Hours with Chris Johnson came out and really it just became a platform for all of my musical philosophies and a way to document those and to make them infinite. You know, I wanted to make it, you know, where it lasted forever. So now it's documented in a format where students can like slow me down. They can pause, they can take notes, they can come back to things. And uh, it's really proven to be something really powerful and really useful for students. And I'm, I'm really proud of it. Okay. And how, how does a student become a participant of that? Is that like an open forum for people or is it, you know, like an online course where you have to sign up for it? Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so we, we have all levels uh, available. So if they go on to officehourswithchrisjohnson.com, Chris spelled K-R-I-S, um, but yeah, officehourswithchrisjohnson.com. So we have a social media platform on both Facebook and Instagram that's very active, constantly pumping out free lessons and advice videos and things like that. We have a couple of challenges on the website. They're all also free. We have a Donna Lee challenge with a really famous song, working through all 12 keys, uh, some chord progressions. And then there's a couple of different uh, entry levels of paid products as well. There's a music theory starter kit that you can buy right now for like $25, a looping masterclass for 25 bucks. And then right now our current flagship product is uh, called progressions. You should know. And that's a little bit more of an in-depth course, but even that we try to really provide a ton of value at a very competitive price. Um, what I always say is I want the course to be comparable to what a, a lesson with a private, you know, uh, with a professional musician would be. So we have a course, uh, it's about covers about 20 different chord progressions that I feel every musician should have in their arsenal. And it's only a $99 course and they get all the videos as well as PDF downloads, et cetera. So um, really at any point, at any entry point, somebody wants to dive in, there's something for everybody there. Dope, dope, dope. So again, you kind of went into artist speak on me. So when you say <laughs> okay. chord progressions, can you can you articulate that any better for an alignment? Absolutely, absolutely. Anytime you're listening to music and you feel the music moving, you know, outside of the lyrics, if you listen to the accompaniment, you hear that there's motion. You hear that the bass note or the lowest note is moving from one note to the next. You hear that the piano player is moving from one chord to the next. We call those chord progressions. And that harmonic movement as opposed to melodic movement. Melodic movement is going to be like the main melody where we hear people sing. Harmonic movement refers to, uh, just like melodic movement, harmonic movement is really about the way that the chords are moving from one to another. There are patterns that are kind of standard to music and certain things that everybody should know. The same way we know our ABCs and we know arithmetic within music, you have to know melody, you have to know harmony and really be well-versed in understanding how to be fluent in that. So I really break down different progressions and different harmonic uh, fluency that everybody should have access to. And when you do that, you become a better composer, you become a better arranger. You're able to hear music in a different way. You can improvise better. You become, you have a lot more clarity in your thought as a musician. So I break down a step-by-step process of how everybody can, can approach that. Yeah, man. So, you know, I don't know if uh, anybody's going to enjoy this episode more than me. <laughs> <laughs> Word, okay. As somebody who's never been able to play an instrument, um, I marvel at the genius of people that play instruments 
And then, you know, it's not just as simple as playing an instrument, it's some thinking involved. Right. And then there's all these other components to it. So you talked a little bit about the standardization, but we also know that you play jazz, which is the antithesis really at its core of standardization, right? So talk a little bit about that duality, right? Being standardized in terms of composing music and sheet music, and then the freestyle you know, flowing of jazz, free flowing of jazz. So what I would say is, I mean, I think within any style of music, you have the ability to either be bound by rules or to be or have the freedom to express, to be able to express freely. However, I think sometimes people assume that within jazz that it's just a free for all. But really, there are a lot of structures that are in place. The difference is, is that, you know, the music that people call jazz, and that's a whole other conversation, even about the origins of the word jazz. I'm, I'm more, I like to refer to my music as Black American music. Um, and that's something that uh, a musician I really look up to a lot, Nicholas Payton coined that term, Black American music. Um, I really identify with that more so than I do the word jazz. To me, Black American music is a combination of, of all the music that, that have come from our people. That, that aside is there are structures in place. There's a tradition there. There are standard things that musicians are expected to know or standard things that really benefit musicians from being aware of. And so my take on it is the ideal musician has it all. The ideal musician can read sheet music clearly, can use their ear and interact in real time, can be creative and spontaneous and, and make things up, can uh, compose music and arrange music, can really experience it in a bunch of different ways. And I think sometimes what happens is there ends up being this disparity between musicians who can read and understand theory and musicians who play by ear. But the reality is my favorite musicians have always been some kind of hybrid. And I don't judge. I don't judge either way. I know some musicians where I could ask them to play the chord they're playing and they're like, man, I, I have no idea what to call this, but they can play it. Yeah. I would actually lean harder towards the side of the musician who can play anything by ear and can feel music and is very intuit intuitive. To me, that's something that you can't teach. That's, that's, yeah. a, get, that's a gift. But then there are other musicians who, you know, and this is, my, this is definitely my story, who had to be able to read it and look at it on paper and analyze it first. But to me, the beauty is the ideal is somewhere in the middle between those two. So I'll take like a lot of the musicians in my band, um, you know, grew up playing in church and they have that, that vibe, they have that thing, but they also study, you know, in school and learn how to read and they can do all those things. I'm coming from this other side where my ear wasn't that strong when I started. And I was coming way more from like, you know, studying classical music with Damien. And I'm learning wind ensemble stuff and all this, right? But then my ears started getting attracted towards jazz and I really wanted to be able to play, you know, jazz and, you know, or, or Black American music, wanted to play other styles. So what happens is we start doing this thing where we're meeting in the middle and the things that they have that I don't have and the things that I have that they don't have start to complement each other. And when you meet in the middle and you're able to really study music in a way where you understand all sides of it, it's a whole other level. So it's definitely spontaneous Sometimes it's spontaneous with absolutely no rules at all. Oftentimes, yeah. though, it's spontaneous within a structure, within a tradition that is very, very strong and that can be studied. It is tangible. 
but there are parts of it, just like with anything else that aren't tangible. I think the best way that I usually describe to my students of the, the correlation between uh, theory and the music is looking at grammar and poetry. So if we take a Langston Hughes or a Khalil, you know, Gibran, or if we take a, you know, a Maya Angelou, right? Mm-hmm. And if we think about their work, they weren't bound by the r- rules of grammar. They were able to break some of the rules and, and talk yeah. within a, a dialect and within a vernacular. But you best believe they were aware of it. They were studied. Yeah. They knew that. But them studying that didn't make them who they were. Yeah. It was a prerequisite. So in my view, understanding the notes, understanding the reading, understanding the theory is one of the prerequisites to being able to elevate to a high, higher level of artistry. Yeah. So that's how I teach. And I keep it very real with my students that it's not like, oh, learn this theory and you're going to become Charlie Parker. Mm-hmm. No, nah, it's like study this and you might have a chance of understanding this better so you can be consistent in your own practice. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, man, there's so many places I can go with that because I think it transcends just music. Absolutely. Like you took it over into poetry, but I started thinking immediately about Kobe Bryant and Michael yeah. Jordan and LeBron James and their fundamentals. Absolutely. How that's the basis of all the dynamic stuff that they're capable of doing on top of it. But it's it's the fundamentals that allow them to do those things. So, yeah. And it's amazing. You see, you see players like that, that still shoot free throws at the beginning of every game that still work out, that still train. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, to me, yeah, absolutely. The equivalent of that with us, man, we still got to play our scales. We still got to practice our reading. We still got to keep our chops up. You know, those fundamentals are, are universal for sure yeah. in, in yeah. any industry. You fall behind on that, you know, you can't hang. Yeah. No. All right. So, like I said, it's a lot for us to chew on with this one. So, <laughs> I want to talk about your big band. Okay. Let's talk yeah. about that. So, um, big band has always been something I loved. Uh, I played, you know, in big band all throughout college. Really loved the music of Duke Ellington, Billy Strayhorn, you know, Count Basie, et cetera. And when I got out of grad school, I actually had the opportunity to join the Count Basie Orchestra. I was on tour with them, you know, for, for years. Uh, I had an opportunity to write for them, but I had never led my own big band up until, uh, what, I think like March or March or April of this year. Wow. It was just, you know, financially, you go do a gig you know, okay, cool. Most places are used to paying four to five people. You get up there with 17 people, you know, nobody, nobody's happy. <laughs> they don't want to pay that much money in, in your average venue. They don't want to pay that much money for the band to play. The musicians don't want to play for like $10. It's just, it just is what it is. But um, so COVID hit and it devastated the arts community. Uh, we're not able to perform. We're cut off from, from touring. A lot of people's income is just severely wrecked. Yeah. Um, in a really bad position. And this is like all arts, not just music. I mean, across yeah. the board, people are just screwed. I mean, it's, it's, it's bad. Yeah. But um, I started talking with a few friends of mine, who, you know, who are musicians who are just looking to kind of keep their sanity, honestly. And I was like, you know what? Um, I've got a little bit of video editing chops just that I've picked up from doing my online series and doing office hours. And, I, you know, I'm a nerd, man. I'm like straight up. <laughs> nerd all day computer nerd so i was like all right bed let's try something different um are you guys down just reach out to a couple of musicians like are you guys down to put together a big band recording i'll send you all the music i promise i'll make it easy for you all you got to do is just sit down record yourself playing video and audio 
I'll edit everything together. Everybody was down because they're like, I just want to play anything. Mm -hmm. So at first, nobody knew like how crazy I was going to make it or what it was going to be. But I sent everybody the music. First, uh, first song we did was Wayne Shorter's Yes or No. So I took his song, kind of had already had an arrangement of it that I had done years back. So I took an existing arrangement, shot it to the musicians, put it together. And it was like, it was a relatively short clip too. We didn't even get into like solos and all that. It was pretty short. Man, people loved it. People were flipping out. I mean, it was almost like all the audience members that would normally be there in person, gung-ho about the performance. They're like, we have something high quality to watch and to experience. So yes, we need more. We need more. So I just started shooting out more charts to musicians. They were happy to do it. We were just doing it on love. Everybody was doing it for free because we had nothing. We had no outlet for music anyway. So at least at the end, even if we couldn't play together live, even though it was pre-recorded and edited together, yeah. we had a final product that we could show off and be like, yo, I did something. Yeah. And uh, it was really impactful. You know, the community really wrapped its arms around it. I had a couple of special guests that I probably wouldn't even have you know, had on a project if we hadn't been in the middle of a pandemic. And so we just kind of rolled with it and it was a beautiful experience. Um, and then one of my mentors, uh, Kamal Kenyatta, a great uh, saxophonist and, and, and piano player from Detroit, went to Cast, went to Cast Tech, um, is a Grammy award winning producer. Yeah. He, he reached out to me and said, man, I just saw this video you did on Wayne Shorter's Yes or No and saw a couple other ones like how how on earth are you doing this? This sounds like it was recorded in a studio and you're recording remotely. How'd you mix it together? He starts asking me questions. And uh, I, he actually ended up commissioning me to write an arrangement of one of his original songs, Peter Cobia. So um, I ended up writing an arrangement of one of his songs and there was enough money you know, to pay myself for the work I was putting in and to pay each of the musicians as well. So wow. suddenly I had a working big band and I'm like, this is, this is wild. So we did our first commission piece and, um, you know, again, people really, really supported it, really loved it. And right now we're actually in the process. Um, um, uh, just finished editing, uh, arranging two more songs of his as well as videos for those. So the musicians are like, as we speak, recording that music, um, that's going to be used for a special private presentation through his university. He teaches for a, uh, a university in California. And uh, it's really, it's really exciting, man. It's really exciting because yeah. we're actually able to, to, you know, I'm able to employ musicians to do what they were doing for free originally. And the audience really find a lot of value because we're producing high, you know, production value in a digital format. And it's actually really enjoyable, both visual and audio experience. There's that saying, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And, Yes. You know, a lot of people are really experiencing that in real life, real time right now because of COVID. It's really uh, hitting us hard. And then, yeah. you know, we got to live. We got to recalibrate. We got to bounce back. We got to come up with stuff. Yeah. So this big band develops. Where do you see it going? You know, a lot of that depends on if our country can get our stuff together. And we can get to the point where we, we can, you know, really begin to heal with what's happening with this pandemic right now. Um, it's hard to say. For right now, what I will say is that we will continue to produce high, high quality content and put it out there. Some of it will be commissioned. Some of it will be just stuff that we do on love because we, we care about sharing these experiences with people. Um, I think eventually, you know, I could see this band doing an album, you know, 
all from afar in different parts of the world. But we had musicians from uh, from Utah, L.A., Detroit, New York, Chicago, like all over the place that are recording wow. on these. So um, I could definitely see an album in the works, which would be beautiful. Um, continue to do private events from now. Eventually, I would love to get the band together and do some live shows. You know, I think the future is very bright. I did end up taking the same process that I went through that I basically taught myself. I kind of just created like a logical way of approach. Like, okay, I think the video, I could edit the videos like this. I can kind of see the workflow and just kind of systematically worked it out and polished it. And so I'm actually uh, launching a course, I believe this Friday. Um, over the last four weeks, I've been putting together a three hour long course teaching my process of how I put these uh, these videos together, the instructions to the musicians on, you know, how to record, how to import all that into logic and mix it together, how to edit the videos, create the frames. It's called virtual band production. It's going to be the latest offering from office hours with Chris Johnson. Okay. Uh, I'm thinking Sean might be one of your pupils. Oh, word. Okay. But, <laughs> oh boy. It's, uh, it's thorough. Scenes, it's thorough. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's, he's doing this thing in the video world and, uh, you know, he's he's kind of learning trial by trial and error and doing a dynamic job, making me sound awesome. and look good. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, I wonder what he was thinking when you started talking about that. But I think you gave me a perfect segue. You talked about uh, an album and you happen to have an album that you just dropped. So tell the world about that. Yeah. So I dropped my my very first audio visual album uh, earlier this year. Uh, back in February. It's entitled Safe. And uh, this project is a first in in many ways. Uh, Every album that I've done, you know, the several albums that I've done before this were all done with my band, the Chris Johnson Group. And we will be doing many, many more to come for sure. But this is like a really personal project that I ended up actually self-producing. So every instrument that you hear on that album, um, you know, I either played live or in, in many cases, you know, use digital instruments and track them in using keyboard and created the whole process. The only person that I brought in was my, my dude, uh, Darrell Red Campbell, who does all my mixing. So he mixed the album for me and put the final product together. But um, it's my first self-produced album. It's also my first uh, outlet as a visual artist um, because I draw and create kind of animations too. Um, and the idea is that it's a, uh, it's a reflection, you know, it's definitely a reflection on where I was at the time, having freshly turned 36 and kind of thinking about my life cycles. I talk a lot about in my particular life, things work in these like six year cycles. And I just hit a pretty major point when I started working on this album. I just left, stepped down as director of jazz studies at the University of Utah and made a decision to um, to focus on being back in Michigan and being there for my boys in a more full-time capacity for like six years, I was on the road either, you know, two of those years at Ohio state teaching on faculty there and commuting back and forth from Columbus, driving back and forth. So I could be with my boys every weekend. Uh, got, got out to Utah. I was there for four years and every other weekend, two weekends a month, I was on a plane right after I got done teaching on Friday. So I could be with my boys Friday night, until Sunday when I dropped them off at their mom's house. And then I headed straight to the airport and went back to teach class Monday morning. So it was this period of time where I was just super, super stretched in. 
And on top of that, being on the road, on top of that, being in a long distance relationship, on top of that, so many other things. Yeah. And so safe was really like uh, an opportunity for me to reflect on just these different periods of my life, especially the last one that uh, really presented some challenges and really maybe get some priorities lined up in terms of like, what, what are you going to do next? And what are you going to focus on next? Mm-hmm. And uh, very happy with the decision that I made uh, over a year ago to return back home and to, to be with them. Uh, it was beautiful having them, you know, 50, 50 custody, have them half the time and mm-hmm. constantly able to be with them and just so into them. Um, you know, and our bond was always, always just off the chain tight, like really, really incredible. But uh, the amount of joy that it brings us to be together this consistently is, is really something and, and, and vital, yeah. more important than any job, more important than anything else I could ever do. No, no doubt about it, man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's so many personal links there, but it's not about me. So like I said, we talked pre-show about uh, B-roll information and B-roll conversation. That's definitely something we'll kind of kick it about and uh, maybe get it, get it on, on recording. But, you know, I want to kind of shift gears a little bit, but first you said the title is safe. Yes. And I was looking for, you know, where, where did that, where does that title fit in? What does that mean? Safe. You know, so I think uh, safe is really about, it's less about how I felt at the time that I wrote it and more about a decision that I was making to allow myself to find safety. So safe was really about like, okay, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this therapy. I'm going to do this personal work. I'm going to make these changes in my life where I don't have to be on an airplane every single weekend, sometimes twice within one week, where I'm not running back and forth, where I'm not working myself, you know, like, like a dog to the point where I'm just exhausted all the time trying to, you know, make up for God knows what, but that I can find true healing and to be able to finally feel safe enough to be in one place, feel safe enough to take better care of myself, feel safe enough to know that everything's going to be cool and I can take care of my family while still being there for my family. Yeah. Wow. Powerful, man. Powerful. All right. So let's shift gears a little bit. Another thing that excited me was, uh, you know, the word being commissioned. Commission is, you know, as a history teacher, you hear about like, you know, uh, Donatello being commissioned and, you know, Casso being commissioned. It's like, you know, now I get to talk to somebody who's actually been commissioned, (laughs) right? (laughs) And, um, you know, and so with this work that you've been commissioned to do in terms of this upcoming musical, uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm very honored to be working with uh, a good friend of mine, John Sloan III, brilliant uh, playwright and uh, vocalist and songwriter, lyricist, just just off the chain brilliant. Um, and we've been working together through Plowshares Theater Company in Detroit um, with, a, with another good friend of mine, Gary Anderson. Gary Anderson and I actually worked together on my first musical, Jim Crow's Tears, uh, which I released the studio album of back in 2013. And um, we worked together on that. He wrote the, the, the book and I composed the music and the lyrics and um, you know, it's pretty successful and we were very happy with it. Years later, through his uh, Plowshares Theater Company, he received some funding 
um, that was supported by the Kresge Foundation and a couple other organizations to have some younger artists write a new piece influenced by Detroit. And so we're working together with Gary Anderson and he commissioned John and I to come up with a musical. So from the ground up, brand new musical, um, the name of the street, uh, the, the musical is Hastings Street, Hastings Street, the musical. And uh, we both actually had a lot of interest in, you know, kind of the, the, the folklore slash the history slash the, yeah. the stories that we had grown up hearing about Black Bottom in Detroit, hearing about, you know, kind of like, you know, I guess what that area was like. Uh, we were coming at it from, I think, from some different angles, too. I was definitely fascinated just by all the all the musicians that I knew that came up yeah. during that era also too, just I've always been fascinated by big bands and how popular they were and yeah. the types of clubs they played in these beautiful ballrooms they were in. And yeah. so our imaginations just started running free with like, what was that era like? Yeah. And how do we pay homage to that without it just being like a history lesson with yeah. it really being more so kind of like a story that takes place that's influenced by that time. And the focal point is not about what happened to Black Bottom. The focal point is about the people that were there and some experiences that they might have had. And uh, been very, very happy with the process. We're in the middle of some edits right now, wrapping up, but we did do a video presentation, I'd say almost two months ago now. We did a video presentation. Again, I ended up doing all the video editing because, you know, again, we got to wear many hats. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we virtually had all the musicians record. Um, I believe we did five songs from the production and uh, people loved it, man. It was, it was really beautiful. Ended up, you know, doing it on Facebook Live and on YouTube, et cetera. It's, it's still out there now. Uh, so I'll make sure I provide you some links so that people can check it out. Yeah. And uh, yeah, now we're wrapping up, hoping to get a reading in soon. And of course, just keep uh, pursuing getting that produced and pursue getting that on stage uh, in its entirety whenever we get out of this mess that we're in right now so we can actually do live shows again but in the meantime you know there's still readings that can happen virtually there's still development that can take place yeah yeah and uh do you feel like there's like because we had the harlem renaissance right 1920s up into the 30s and it was something that was kind of brewing and then it explodes do you feel like COVID is kind of setting the stage for another renaissance period? You know, I got to say, I, I feel like, I feel like it's really divided. There are a lot of artists that I talk to, or a lot of people that I talk to who are just stir crazy and just depressed and mm -hmm. they don't want to be home anymore. They're struggling. It's, it's really hard for them. But yeah. then there's some others. And I, I would say I'm in this camp who are, of course, I, I, I hate that this has happened to the world. I hate that people are getting sick, all that. Yeah. I'm finding my peace in the process of being home. And there's something about being still. There's something about being able to be laser hyper-focused and not yeah. having to be out running around as much that I'm finding some joy and peace in. Like, okay, I'm going to take advantage of this time. And I don't, you know, everybody's going to react to it differently. So I always try to make sure I give that disclaimer that I don't expect, I don't have this like, Oh, you should be hustling. Me personally, I'm hustling right now. I'm yeah. in full on hustle mode. Um, I think for some people it is sparking some unique interest and some unique products and some unique output that we wouldn't have seen if this hadn't happened. And I know a lot of people that are picking up 
you know, even my fiance is like painting now. She's a vocalist, a songwriter, an actress, and and she's like her outlet is painting. And she's like mm-hmm. selling some of her paintings now. It's really dope. Mm-hmm. But like we wouldn't end up there. I wouldn't have had a big band. I'm doing another series called Loop Therapy, where I'm literally just like, okay, I can't go play with musicians, but I want to like create music. So I've got I'm working with a loop pedal and creating all these looping videos. Those are things that honestly I was too busy to yeah. take on previously. I'm I'm a video editor now. I never thought in a million years I'd be editing an online course to the extent that I am now. So really I think that for some people it is kind of an awakening that's happening because people are able to having to face themselves more on a daily basis. Yeah. And they're having to sit there and stare at their mess, stare at their joy, stare at things that are right in front of their face, connect with their family more. So I say maybe for some, but I definitely feel a personal renaissance happen within yeah. myself. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to wind down. I mean, uh, we, we, <laughs> we would talk for five or six hours, I'm afraid, Easily. Uh, if I don't Easily. wind this thing down. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, as my boy Sean would say, you're definitely going to have to come back on because there's more there yes. for us to discuss. But uh, there's a few things we do towards the end. Um, the first thing is, we asked the question, have you ever been on a uh, magazine cover? Uh, yes, I've been on a magazine cover through the University of Utah. So if you count that, I count it. It was the uh, College of Fine Arts had a um, has a magazine called Studio that they put out. And uh, yeah, I was honored to be on the cover of that with an interview and a spread and all that. It was really dope. Yeah. So all uh, magazine covers count. There we go. <laughs> However, all covers aren't created equal. And so, you know, here at Dripping in Black, each guest becomes the uh, the cover piece for our Dripping in Black magazine. So I love there it. you have it. All right. That's that's amazing. Yeah. I appreciate y'all very much. Mm-hmm. We will that's, get that out. That's our um, little pardon gift that we give to our guests. You it's know, appreciated. So you come back on, we'll have another cover for you. <laughs> all right. Awesome. All right. Awesome. So let's uh, drop all of your social media information so people can reach out to you and, con- and reach Absolutely. out and contact you. Yeah, for sure. So you can uh, check me out on both Instagram and Facebook. I'm under the uh, the handle Chris Johnson Music, Chris spelled K-R-I-S. And if you want to follow my educational series, it's Office Hours with Chris, again, both on Instagram and Facebook. And then my website, personal website is chrisjohnsonmusic.com. And of course, the educational website, as I said earlier, is officehourswithchrisjohnson.com. All right. So thanks again for uh, Chris Johnson for joining us on the Dripping in Black podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm going to end this uh, podcast a little differently. Um, but this segment ends and then we go into the final segment, the last drip. So make sure you all stay tuned for that. But we're going to close out with one of uh, Chris's uh, latest records. So just stay tuned for that as well. Yeah, thank you for coming out. Appreciate you, bro.
our thanks again to uh, Chris Johnson, wonderful guest, as we discussed uh, the intersection of music and life through his own personal story, true stories, like we like to do here on the Driven in Black podcast. But we have reached our final segment that we call The Last Drip. And by now, you should know The Last Drip is our last opportunity to squeeze in just a little bit more Black excellence before we leave you. We also use it to squeeze in some Black history and tie it in with what we discussed to that point. All right, so today, the last drip takes us to Black Bottom in Paradise Valley. All right, so in our discussion with Chris, he was talking about being commissioned to create music for an upcoming play called Hastings Street. Well, Hastings Street was a major thoroughfare for Black Bottom in Paradise Valley. So what was Black Bottom in Paradise Valley? Black Bottom was a thriving Black neighborhood in Detroit, and Paradise Valley was a region of prosperous Black-owned businesses in Detroit. In the 1940s and 1950s, both of these areas were thriving and prosperous. By 1942, Detroit Urban League reported that Black Bottom had an impressive list of professionals, entrepreneurs, and businesses, including 151 physicians, 140 social workers, 85 lawyers, 71 beauty shops, 57 restaurants, 36 dentists, 30 drug stores, 25 barbershops, 25 dressmakers, 20 hotels, 15 fish markets, 10 hospitals, 10 electricians, 9 insurance companies, 7 building contractors, 5 flower shops, 2 dairy distributors, and even 2 bondsmen. By the 1950s, these regions were major areas of uh, Black-owned businesses, social institutions, and even nightclubs. Paradise Valley had one had a nationally famous music scene for blues singers, big bands, and jazz artists. Duke Ellington, Ella Fitzgerald, Count Basie, and many others frequently performed in the bars and clubs of Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. In the 1960s, the racist plot of urban renewal was used as a guise to construct the I-75 and I-375 freeways right through these prosperous neighborhoods, Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. Ultimately, this construction would erase both of those areas off the Motor City map, literally. It remains one of the many great atrocities that have been committed against our people in this country that is not taught in our history textbooks. However, it is this episode's last drip. For more on the history of Black Bottom and Paradise Valley, check out AveryReview.com That's A-V-E-R-Y Review.com as well as DetroitHistorical.org Alright, my thanks to both sites for the knowledge. As always, get up on your vast and powerful Black history, people. And until next time, be good, be good, be good.
it is a choice.